1 Peter 1, verse 13 through chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without a blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like a flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Kyle. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and we need you. We ask Almighty God for your work even now, that you would have your way in this place, that you would, uh, Lord, in a very real way, invade us, that you would uh, speak to us and through us and maybe even uh, right now, maybe even in spite of us, Lord, that we would hear from you. And so, Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand for your good glory. It's in Jesus Christ's precious and holy, holy, holy name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 I've been wondering, how does a church go from just a few thousand people to a movement that transforms the world? How does it do that? Because whatever happens there, that's what I want. Like, that's what I want to be a part of. Not for the sake of sensationalism, not for the sake of excitement, though that would be cool. It's not about that. But there is a transformative movement that we saw early on in the church that is really unparalleled. And why? Perhaps the one person who could speak to it with great authority is a guy named Peter. Hope Rising is the theme, is the series that we're currently on from the book of 1 Peter. This epistle speaks to a church that in many ways is divided. There are some Jewish believers who they accepted Jesus as their Savior and they knew beyond the shadow of a doubt, like, I love Jesus. And I know that I know that I know that he's the Messiah and I'll love him. And In doing that, they had family members who said, then we're done with you. They had communities that said, then this isn't the place for you. And they had a government that came down on them. 
Then there were these Gentile believers. <laughs> they didn't know anything or very little about the scriptures. They just knew that they loved Jesus too. Yeah, there is this man who saved me, who rescued me, and I want to follow him. I want to know him. And in doing so, their families rejected them and their communities pushed them away. And the government came in and in many cases took their lives. How does a church in that setting grow to be the type of movement that changes the world? That's what we're going to see. That's what we're going to embrace as we go to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to chapter 1, verse 13 is where we're going to be. And as you're turning there, uh, I, I want to get us ready for it. Uh, at, at least on the same page so that we're, we're thinking in the similar terms. To do that, we need to embrace some terms. The first term that I want to talk about is preparing your minds for action. How do we prepare our minds for action? It's a term that's used, and some of your translations may even say it this way. It means to gird up. And so in the ancient world, when they had these long robes, if they were going to run somewhere, they'd grab their robes, they'd pull them up above their knees, and they'd tie them off so that they could run unhindered. So to do that, they had to gird up their clothing. The reason that that matters, and perhaps the reason that Peter is speaking that to the early church is to say, your mind, you're going to have to take some time and think about it. We're going somewhere, and you're going to have a lot of opposition. And if you don't prepare ahead of time, you could trip and stumble and fall. And so, gird up your mind. Get it ready. Be prepared. Scripture says in Romans that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. So our mind is not just this physical organ, right? It is also spiritual. And we have to recognize that as we move through 1 Peter. The next thing is the word hope. Hope is one of those words, if you think of hope as being a glass of water, the water in it is, is good, it's fresh, it's refreshing, but the glass outside it, it's been touched by a lot of different hands, and it's kind of greasy. And just by looking at the cup, you're like, mm, I don't know if I want what's in it because that cup is nasty. And the reason I say that is because the word hope has been defined by a lot of different people. In fact, we say things like, I hope you understand. Uh, I hope you get it. I hope I get a raise. I hope my car starts when I go out. I hope somebody else shovels my snow. I, like We use hope a lot of different ways. But it is very specific in Scripture how it's used. So I'd like you to think in your head, hope, say the word jaffs. It's a made-up word. Jaffs. Go ahead. Jaffs. Okay, it's a joyful anticipation of a fulfillment of our salvation. Jaffs. There we go. Thank you. Thanks, Mom. I see you're here today. No. <laughs> no, just kidding. Just kidding. But jaffs is the word, a joyful anticipation of the fulfillment of our salvation. So let me talk about that for just a moment because this is a big part of what Peter is standing on as it relates to the early church, this church that's being persecuted, this church that the government is coming in and saying, you need to say that Caesar is Lord. How do you tell them that? And they go, um, or what? 
or we're going to kill you publicly. In some cases, we're going to feed you to animals. In other cases, we may crucify you. In other cases, we might tie you to a stake and burn you alive. All you have to do is say, Caesar is Lord. How does a young church with this sort of pressure stand firm and Peter zeroes in on this idea of holiness and hope? That hope, a joyful anticipation of the fulfillment of our salvation. Sometimes we think in terms of salvation as uh, already completed, like we, we have it. And, and in a way, that's true. See, Jesus died for our sins. I've received him as Savior, so I am saved, past tense. Uh, Jesus is still at work in my life in a transformative way. I'm being saved, and there is going to be a day when I know God personally. I see him face to face, and sin and death is completely gone. It's vanquished, and I will be saved, future tense. Salvation is a big deal to the early church, and they have to understand that, and they have to walk in this way. And I, I think of it a little bit like a, an infant in the mother's womb. Consider this for just a second. An infant in the mother's womb. It's like, um, you know, do they sit in there and go, shouldn't I have a mom? I don't see her anywhere. Where where is my mom? You know, like I hear this muffled voice. Is that her? Is that my mom? In a similar way, we're like that with God. Like I, I don't see him. I think maybe I should see him. I, I, I want to know him. I think I, I hear this muffled voice a little bit, but I don't, I, I can't really, it's not as clear as it's going to be. And Peter says, it's going to be. Yes, that's what you're going to get. And all of these things are going to be worth it. And he's talking to a group of people who are going to experience a lot of pain. I have to tell you, I'm excited about heaven. It's how I get to heaven that makes me really nervous. Right? It's that dead part. That doesn't sound fun. And it didn't to the early church either. But Peter says there's something there's something better, and it's going to be all worth it. And just like this child in the mother's womb, yeah, kiddo, it's going to hurt, and you're going to feel some pressure, and, and it's not going to be a pleasant thing, but you're going to see your mama's face, and it's going to be a beautiful moment, and you're going to experience mom in ways that you could never even dream in this place. And that is in part heaven where we're going. It's a big deal. And the early church recognized that. They received that. And they moved in that way in such a way that it transformed the world. Holiness is another term that we use. In our culture, we, we primarily use it in a derogatory way. Like we'll say things like, oh, aren't they holier than thou? You know, like that's how it's used um, outside of church. But holiness is a big deal. And, and it's God's. And God paid for it, and God is extending his reputation to the church because of it. And, and I, I have to share, I shared this a little bit with Shakopee last week, and I, I want to share with you too, that in recent days, we've seen a number of religious leaders fall. I mean, evangelicals, and in some cases, men that I, I've, I've read their books, and I, I've prayed for them and their ministry and loved those guys. Uh, they've impacted me in big ways, have fallen, and it's, it's heartbreaking. But what they did is, they, like, it wasn't just their reputation that was hurt. 
It was also their church's reputation that was hurt. It was all pastors' reputations that was hurt. It was the church at large that was hurt, but ultimately and more specifically and more concerning is that it's God's reputation that was hurt, that now because of their fall, because they choose to not, they chose to not walk in holiness, to not walk in the spirit, because they chose that, there are people who are like, I'm not interested in God. Stop it. If that is what godliness is, if that's what it means, I'm out. Holiness, it's not ours. It was given to us. And uh, all illustrations fall short when you, know, when you play them out. But one illustration that I like to share about holiness is my, is my, my dad. He bought uh, an old, beat-up Ford Mustang. It was 1967 when I was about 19. And he fixed it up. And just before he had it painted... Uh, he said, uh, so Kenny, you want to drive it? <laughs> yeah, I want to drive it. Of course I want to drive it. And it just hummed, you guys. It was such, such a beautiful machine. Uh, I loved everything about it. But I loved my dad more. And I knew this, that if, if, I, got, if I got pulled over, it, it would break his heart because it would reflect him. It was like, I let you drive my Mustang and you went out and, and got a ticket driving like an idiot because... He could say that to me, and it was true. And so, uh, so I didn't want that. And then I knew if I wrecked it, he had put all this work into it. I didn't want to, I didn't want to wreck it. Like, that represented a lot of work. So, in kind of an embarrassing way, I got to tell you, I drove that thing under the speed limit. And I brought it back whole. In fact, I put gas in it. I cleaned it up. And he said, Kenny... If you ever want to drive it again, let me know. I'm like, Dad, I want to drive it again. Um, it was such a nice vehicle. Now, how does that relate to holiness this way? I didn't buy it. Uh, that was something that my dad allowed me to, to ride around in. It was his reputation and it was his work that I was driving around representing. And so it is with holiness. Like, that was the work of God. That's what God has done. And he's offering his reputation to the church. So when you're running around in it, make sure that your freedom is not ruining the reputation of God. Not only this, uh, these, these ideas that we want to, these terms that we want to embrace, but also there's some imagery in scriptures that we want to grab a hold of. The, the Passover and the Exodus are, are two uh, key components to the imagery. Also, the wilderness wanderings, and they're, they're all kind of blurred in together, which is an ancient Middle Eastern way of really communicating. We're, we're so... Um, uh, segmented and how, how we communicate metaphors, right? Uh, not so much in the Middle East. It was kind of like, let's just stir this all together and you'll figure it out. You know what I'm talking about. And uh, this is an example of that. Because of time, we can't go into others. There are some other uh, images that, that we probably should address, some things like the temple and tabernacle that Peter weaves into these conversations. But uh, let's talk about these as primary uh, metaphors or imagery that is used. So first of all, this Passover. The Passover is this, this uh, 
beautiful picture that happens in the Old Testament. The children of Israel uh, go to Egypt and, and uh, they're successful and, and good things are happening. And then they become slaves because they're, they're like taking over the place. And so the Egyptians enslave them and they're, they're slaves for a long time. And God with mighty hand says to Moses, Moses, I want to bring you and my people out and into the promised land, into a place that I promised. And there are these... Uh, 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 there are these plagues that occur. And the final plague is this angel of death that comes through. And every home in Egypt uh, is the, uh, that the angel of death visits is going to take the firstborn. Unless there is the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of the home. And if the blood is over the doorposts, when the angel of death comes by, he's going to move on past it. In other words, you can't get to the promised land. You can't have freedom. You can't have life unless this blood is applied to the doorposts of your home. It's a great metaphor that in the New Testament is realized in the work of Jesus. John the Baptist says about Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Well, he's saying many things, but one of the things that he's identifying is this is the lamb that gives us life that we can go into the promised land of God because of his work. There's more to it than that, but that's a snapshot. Then this Exodus movement is to go from Egypt, this place of slavery, to the promised land. It's a reminder, your home is not in Egypt, and there's this big fight uh, uh, among the children of Israel, especially when this 11-day journey goes into 40 years. Like, that's a problem, Moses. Uh, do you not know how to get there? What's, like, what's happening here? And then they get out in the wilderness, and they're, they're there for a few months, and they're like, oh, I'm tired of this bread, this manna from heaven. Sure, God supplies it every day uniquely, but I think it gets old after a while. And then there's this quail, this meat. We love it, but it's, ah, it's the same thing. Hey, you remember when we were in Egypt and they had melons there? Those were so good. And Moses is like, oh, you mean when you were slaves? <laughs> what? You would rather be a slave in Egypt and have melons than the freedom that you have in God and follow him to the promised land? What? That's the imagery that we see in the wilderness wanderings as well. It's going to come up in the scriptures. And then also, uh, you're going to see a new family identity that plays out. And this is a big one. This is a really big one because you have these churches coming together and they're made up of these Hebrew believers, these Jewish believers who have received Jesus as their savior, but their synagogue saying, nope, we don't want you in our place of worship. And their families are going, if you're going to follow Jesus, I'm really not that interested in that. Uh, you're not a part of our home. And then the government's going, we don't recognize Christianity as legitimate. You know what? Uh, you need to say Caesar is Lord or it's going to cost your life. And there's a similar thing happening with Gentiles on the other side where they're saying they're being rejected by their families, their communities. And all of a sudden, it's like, who are we then? Who are we? What is, who do I connect with? Now, Peter doesn't say, well, reject all these other things where you've come from. No, he says, you're part of a new family. And I, I like the way that we, we have this uh, just kind of outlined through what Peter is about to tell us. Obedient children who call God father, love their siblings because they were born again as infants and drank spiritual milk. So they, they grew up in these things. 
Now, part of the reason that I'm telling you this is because if, if you look, the nuclear family is a big piece of God's plan. A father, a mother, children. Now, there are outlier situations where uh, that doesn't happen for a variety of reasons. And, and, and today, my point is not to address that as much as to say that there is a place for fathers in the scriptures. In fact, God is looking for fathers. When we, when we have looked throughout history, when sociologists uh, have looked at Christianity, one of the things that they've identified is this, that the way that a person, a child sees their father impacts the way that they understand God. So is it possible, is it probable, is it likely, is it true that God puts fathers in a unique position so that people can know God? The answer seems to be yes. Yes, sometimes fathers, great examples, sometimes bad examples. Regardless, they are examples and reminders that there is a God and is pushing us toward him using the nuclear family in a variety of ways. And we can, we can talk about some imagery that's used for women. In fact, I did earlier with the pregnancy piece. Uh, probably we'll be talking more about that during Christmas time. Um, regardless, there is a place for fathers, regardless of, of what our communities are telling us or what uh, our culture is speaking, men, you got to roll. One of the reasons that Kyle Whitmore was up here reading and John Brandenburg is in Shakopee reading the scriptures today is to remind us that we have a responsibility to lift up the word of God and that men have a role in our families and in our churches in part to do that. It's not to say women don't. It's not to say that children don't. It's to say that men, we're going to grab a hold of this and hold it up as a banner and we're going to bring our families along with us. And that, that's the call. So that's where we're going in case you were wondering. Let's get into the scriptures now. You're like, oh my word, that was his intro? <laughs> yep, it was. <laughs> All right, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, and we're going to go to chapter 2, verse 3, and highlight some things as we go. Buckle up, here we are. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. There it is. Gird it up, right? Tie it off, prepare ahead of time, because we're going somewhere. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That hope, there it is, a joyful anticipation of the fulfillment of our salvation. Jaffs, right there, talked about it. As obedient children, the imagery of the nuclear family, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Hey, you didn't know. You didn't know what you didn't know. You didn't know. You're not conformed by that, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why you're preparing your minds. And then we continue on in verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There's the, uh, a Leviticus reference, which reminds us of the Exodus. That God is saying, follow, I'm modeling this for you. Jesus came in part to model this for us. The Holy Spirit is given to transform us, that we can live that out. Be holy as I am holy. We're separated. We are in the car of God, right? I mean, it is him who paid for this holiness. It is he who, uh, who has afforded it to us, and it's his 
uh, reputation that we're driving around in. Continuing on. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. If you have your Bibles, underline that word exile. That's a super important word here. It is a fantastic reminder of who we are. It was a fantastic reminder of this new family that was growing up in the Lord of who they are. And it still works today. I don't know. I, like, like, this isn't a political statement, but is anybody just frustrated with where we are culturally? I mean, it doesn't matter where you're at. And anybody else frustrated with it? Okay, I'm the only one. Cool. <laughs> Thanks for sticking with me, church. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of frustrating a little bit. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And here's the reminder, your exiles. This isn't your home. We're going somewhere else. Our home is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. If you're frustrated now, good. This isn't your home. And here's the problem that we have. Many times we hold on to these things that God has given us, those things that we steward, we hold on to them, and if we shift it just a degree, they become idols in our lives. I love my home. I really need my home. Oh, I love, one day I'm going to have to retire, and, and do I have enough money for retirement, and I need some more money? These are things that we should all think about, but when that becomes our God, and we are so focused on this that we're not looking at that hope, we're not reminded of that joyful anticipation of the fulfillment fulfillment of our salvation, we're so stuck in this place, then we've missed it. And this is the reminder of that. You are exiles. Keep going. We're passing through this place. You don't have to be in a hurry, but we're just passing through. Continuing on, verse 18. Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold. Remember, the children of Israel came out of Egypt with gold. They walked out in martial array as they left. As Moses led this group out, uh, Egypt thought, wait a minute, we want them back. It would be easy if, if we're not careful to think that somehow that gold and silver was what they needed to get out. It's not. They didn't pay their way. They didn't earn it. Tell us more, Peter. I think he will. Let's see. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish put on our doorposts, right? He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Here's why that matters. Peter is writing in a time, just a a decade or two away, a generation or two away from people who were there when Jesus died. Here's why that matters. If Jesus didn't raise from the grave, someone in Peter's day could have said, no, wait, Peter, the tomb is right over here. No, wait, here's the body, Peter. Don't, don't be going around telling people this crazy stuff. Here's the body. But they didn't. History records nobody could. However, there's still one uh, situation that could have occurred. Maybe the disciples hid it away. And if you were thinking that, that's, that's a great place for your brain to go. Did the disciples do that? Well, no. And here's why I say no. Because they all lost their life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it was a lie, they wouldn't give up their lives. All you have to do is say, Caesar is Lord. Oh, yeah, well, we, 
have the body tucked away over here. But they didn't. And you say, well, one, one didn't die a martyr's death. Yeah, his name was John. And he was exiled to Patmos and uh, worked in the rock quarry on Patmos uh, as a 70, 80-year-old. Uh, his life was not easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy. He suffered for Jesus. That's the reality of the situation. Peter is talking in a time where this could have been challenged, and it wasn't. And that gives me a lot of hope because I look at church history and I see this, you know, a few thousand people who start to move with this hopeful anticipation of what God is doing, not just currently, but what he's going to fulfill ultimately in their life. And they, like, just block out the rest of everything else and they are zeroed in on Christ and the world is transformed because of it and Peter indicates it. Continuing on, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Like that motive that we're loving has to come from God. It's not a motive that's like, what am I going to get out of this? What can, I, what can strategically put me in a better spot? How will other people look at me if I'm kind to you? No, this is love for love's sake. It's love because that's the kind of love that's been given to us that we give on to others. That's what's being talked about here. Since you have been born again, this phrase is used by Peter. It's echoed in the Gospel of John chapter 3. That's generally where we think of this phrase, born again. When, P, or when John, rather, is talking to Nicodemus at night and he, he's talking about being born again. You have to be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. Here, Peter is using it before the gospel is even written. And he's, he's saying, like, this born again, like, those old things that you were, something new has happened. How are you a part of this family? Because you're born again. You've received Jesus as your Savior. The seed of God now indwells you. The Spirit of God is within you. And that that we, that we have been called to is doable in Christ. Not in the flesh. Let's keep going. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away, if you have your pens and paper in your Bible, go ahead and underline that. Put away malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Put those things away. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Let me pause there because this is an important piece. Uh, this phrase is used several times. This is the only place that it's used in a good way to drink this pure spiritual milk. In the other places, it's referred to uh, in 1 Corinthians and in Hebrews. The idea is like, it's spiritual milk. You should grow up past this. Like, okay, you've had your milk. Now let's eat food. You have teeth. You don't need that. Um, but here he's saying for these young believers, like you're new in Christ and it's okay. You drink that milk. Get your foundation. Clear your mind. Drink this in. Know that God is good. And that's what he goes on to say. That by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Do you know that the Lord is good? I'm not talking about the fruit of knowing the Lord. I'm talking about the Lord. 
If nothing else came with God except God, would that be enough? So here's what Peter has to say to the church. Okay, if we've tasted the goodness of God then, put away. Here are the things that he talks about in that passage, and we'll spell it out just as a point of clarity. The first thing is malice. Malice, it's kind of a weird word. We don't use it too often. But what it means (laughs) is, is to break the law without care. Like, I'm unrepentant and unashamed. Unashamed to break the law. I can just do it. It's owed to me. I'm going to do it because I'm going to do it. That's this word, malice. You see any of that anywhere? Is that modeled anywhere? How about this word, deceit? Deceit is another one of those unique words. It, it also means to bait. Like baiting somebody. Hey, I'm going to see if I can get somebody to say this. I'm going to see if I can make you mad or upset by throwing this out there. Anybody ever seen that on social media? Deceit. How about hypocrisy? It's a word that means to be an actor. We're going to act like. Mm. We're going to put on a show. Sometimes we talk about that in, in churches. We'll say, you know, is this your Sunday face or is this, what you're re- is this who you really are? Um, it's, it's a discussion we have because we know that sometimes they're like, okay, I'm just going to suck it up and I'm going to pretend like everything's good. And if somebody asks how I'm doing, I'm going to say, okay, uh, because they don't really want to know anyways. And, w- and we act like that. We act. That's hypocrisy. A- a- and there's something more for believers, something intended more. Envy or jealousy, slander, it means to defame people. Has it ever occurred, and this was kind of a, I don't know, a thought that I've been chewing on this week even, and that is that that God uniquely formed each person in his own likeness, that he loves them, that he cares about them so much that he was willing to die for everyone's sin, like not just my sin, but everyone's sin, and, and he has value in that person so that if I'm slandering them, I'm, I'm, ta- I'm trying to take that away, that value that they have. That's horrible. That, that's not the people of God. Early discipleship in a book called the Didache talks about this very issue. Say nothing against anyone, ever. <laughs> like, that's pretty clear. And it's not just being nice. It's not slandering. And it's putting value in people because people are created in the image of God. And then he says, so grow up. So grow up. It's okay to grow up. You don't have to stay in that place. Our old ways, our default was malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, uh, slander. That's our default. That's who we have been. But God wants something else for us, and he wants us to grow up in our salvation, in that jaffs, that joyful anticipation of the fulfillment of our salvation. Uh, He wants that, to grow up in it. And so sometimes people are going to be malice toward you and rules that maybe you think apply to you doesn't seem to apply to them. Yeah, grow up in your salvation. Don't fight fire with fire. I I love that phrase, by the way. Don't fight fire with fire. Usually the fire department uses water. It's helpful. Try something different. Uh, Deceit, 
Same thing. We're not baiting people. Even if we're baited, we're not, we're not engaged in that game. Hypocrisy, we're not engaged in that acting game. Envy, we're not engaged in that envious game. Slander, we're not defaming people. That's not who we are as a people. We're going to follow Christ and have that hope as we drive around in holiness, God's holiness. So as we close up our time and as the worship team comes, uh, I, I just want to throw this out to us. What is God speaking into your heart? Are you in that place where I have been, where I've focused in on these stuff and this, these things, this temporary life, and have built that up while I've overlooked the eternal and where my home really is? Have you done that? I want to give you just a, a quiet moment as the worship team is coming and getting in place, and I'm going to pray for us. Uh, as, as we uh, prepare our hearts to sing this last song. Jesus, we, we do love you and we need you. And we ask, Almighty God, that you would continue to grow us up for your glory and for your will. Forgive us, Almighty God, for being so focused on the temporary and missing the eternal. Lord, forgive us for that. And help us to walk in faith and obedience and perhaps even <laughs> as newborns in this new family that you've called us to for your glory. In Jesus' name.